This is a story written by a man, but a man chose to put those words in an outsider, in a sex worker, in a woman's voice, in a world where like the testimony of a woman was zero. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock. Re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance. Break down toxic theology and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful, iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode with the Reverend Dr. Sarah Gerard out of Old West Church in Boston. Um, Sarah is a member with me of the Liberation Project. You may have seen her in some of the Liberation Project roundtables, um, but she also does an, a lot of incredible background uh, work for the project, including um, she has masterminded resources like our sermon series, which I think is some of the most uh, impactful uh, material that we put out there. I know it's been really powerful at Zao to implement some of those series and to do that alongside other liberationist congregations. But Sarah graciously um, offered to experiment with me um, back in the day with podcast format and storytelling. And actually, this conversation was never originally intended for release. But honestly, we just had so much fun. And the conversation was so rich. She has so much to contribute to, um, to this dialogue about how to approach and reapproach scripture um, as as you evolve as a person, as a self. I mean, she really shares a lot about how her evolving self-identity really had a profound and and healing impact on her relationship with scripture. And I just thought people have to hear this. So um, she agreed to, to let me put it out there. And uh, I'm, I'm so excited for you to hear Sarah's radical take on scripture. Um, she's extremely passionate about educating people about women in the Bible in particular. Uh, that was the focus of her doctoral work, especially around Mary Magdalene. And if you talk with her uh, about Mary Magdalene or hear her speak publicly about it, you will, you will leave with a newfound respect for that woman, for that figure um, in our in our sort of shared history and in our you know in our texts. But today, um, after we dig into Sarah and her biography and uh, how she uh, shifted in her identity and uh, her relationship to the Bible, she will uh, lead us through a conversation about Rahab. Now, I don't know if anyone here really is super familiar with Rahab. I know I honestly wasn't until uh, Sarah actually gave me the opportunity to go deep into Rahab's story as a part of the Advent series she designed that we did at Zao, which was just a couple weeks before we recorded this conversation. 
Uh, and it was, it was just really cool to go, uh, deeper into a story about this incredible woman who I had never really given a, a whole lot of thought to. And so then to go even deeper in this conversation with Sarah was very, very cool. So I hope that you really dig it. I hope that you catch Sarah's passion and I hope that you leave this conversation with a greater, uh, respect and, and admiration for women as figures in the Bible, as characters. Um, and, and frankly, I hope that you leave this conversation, uh, you know, after spending time hearing us talk, uh, with just, you know, as much love for Sarah as I have, um, when you listen to this. So please enjoy our conversation, uh, with Sarah Gerard. Gerard, elder in the United Methodist Church. Provisional uh, elder. Provisional elder. Fake elder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, LLP over here, you know, we don't even count. Mm-hmm. Uh, like literally, we don't. Our vote. Well, yeah. What are voting rights? <laughs> don't matter. Um, yeah. Doctorate of ministry. Um, got that reverend doctor action going on over in your neck of the woods. Okay. And you serve Old West Church. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today to talk about the Bible. Um, as you have heard me say many times, you are a collaborator with me on the Liberation Project. Um, you're more behind the scenes, and we rely on you daily um, <laughs> to do the good front-facing work of the Liberation Project. Uh, and so you have heard me say many times that I love the Bible, um, complicated relationship, all that good stuff. But uh, what's your relationship with the Bible? Um, I would also say complicated, maybe in a different way. Um, I like to get really nerdy about the Bible and I love the Hebrew and the Greek of it and, um, was never really, uh, I would say abused or hurt by the Bible. And, um, I, so I love that part. And then, but I also have a lot of anger issues when it gets misused. And so mm. it is a complicated relationship. And so I think I'd be very happy if I could just, you know, study it and not have to deal with people's shitty interpretations. Yeah. If you got to like enjoy the Bible isolated in your hermitage, it's great, right? Yes. With, with liberal in, insights and I love reading other people's stuff and um, have found that always really formative. And then when I see bad exegesis or even eisegesis of like people reading into what they want to say, I'm just like, none of this is like, that's when I get really upset. So I, that's where it gets complicated. Well, and you, so you're up in Boston now, Yes. yes. but you are a transplant from the South. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about before is how different the Bible learning culture is and different places Mm -hmm. that you've lived. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yes. Um, Boston has also a a very religious culture or it thinks it has a religious culture, I'd say. Um, And so does the South in very different ways. So the South, I grew up in South Georgia, um, strong Baptist area, but I'm Methodist and um, we did not have the Bible drills the way they did in the 
in a lot of churches, but um, if you didn't go to church, you were like a nobody. Um, and so it was everyone to church and that equated to Bible knowledge. I will say, I think I got my Bible knowledge from my parents. Uh, my mom's a minister, my dad teaches, but he also teaches Sunday school. And so they are incredibly literate in um, not just the Bible, but Hebrew, Greek. So I got a very odd introduction to the Bible. Um, so that's great. Um, and the South equates to going to the like Bible sword drills as knowing the Bible, which is not the same thing. And then in the North right now in Boston, again, I'm not an insider uh, on this, but uh, it's very Catholic. Um, and so a lot of people, when they come to the church, they're like, oh, are you the priest and of this of this diocese or this church? And I'm like, um, we, we're not Catholic. We don't do mass. And um, they have very Catholic views of certain things, but that's not, there's a lot of lingo and language happening, but actual biblical support of things is not there. Um, so I think there's a very surface deep understanding of scripture in probably both locations. Um, so yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that from some people who it sort of comes from all over. A lot of folks feel mm -hmm. like they don't have a good grasp on what the Bible means oh, yeah. or how to read the Bible. And sometimes they're coming from um, Catholic or Episcopal or Methodist backgrounds mm -hmm. where they're like, well, I feel very connected to God and connected to practice and to, you know, my religious history and identity, mm -hmm. but I don't, I just haven't read that much of the Bible. And that wasn't really emphasized versus I've also heard folks who are like, I grew up Baptist or evangelical or whatever. And I feel like I could quote you the Bible up, down and sideways. And I have no idea what it means. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't know how to make sense of this or piece it together. I just could, I could like, re, I yeah. could recite it on command. Um, yes. There's like two different versions different. of it. It's like the too long, didn't read Jesus loves me. Um, <laughs> yes. And then the like, I've read it all and haven't the clue how to like, how to interpret this. Um, and then I think there can be harm done from both of those approaches. Absolutely. Um, so I do, ha although I have people who've tried to read the Bible in my church and I try to get my people to read the Bible. Like, I'm like, you know, it's a church, but you should read the Bible. But a lot of them have started like from the beginning. And I'm like, don't start from the beginning. Like we're never, you're never going to finish this thing. Yeah. It's like a game. How, of do, you, how do you recommend people read the Bible or, or encounter oh the Bible? Um. There is like a really, there used to be really good, but it, again, like with a grain of salt, there was a reading program um, that I did for years, but I only recommend it to people who have like a thorough grounding in their own self-identity as fully realized human in the sense that like, if you find your identity as a female, for, for me, I identify as a, as a female don't read this if you are struggling with like man god language because mm. they are all about man god language and i'm just like yeah likes. and so if i can read this and not be harmed by that that's it's great but there was a program that i used just to and it would give you the the things and what it did was it was like a couple of chapters from the old testament a day a couple from the new and then on the Sundays, it gave you a Psalms and you read the whole Bible in a year. And that was actually a really, really lovely, um, very doable 
um, series. Um, it was called She Reads Truth. I think you have to pay for the series now, but it was a really great program. And so it'd be something that I would hope something like a common English Bible would produce um, very similarly. Um, yeah. But it gave you a break, a little bit of respite, because I mean, the Old Testament, there are parts of it you're just like, and the new, I mean, there are parts that you're just like, this is pulling teeth for me. Like yeah. how many cubic feet was the temple? I don't care. Yeah. I mean, and, and some of it even is cool and still is hard to slog through. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron and I have been reading through, um, we just like pick books to read um, over the dinner table. Oh my and gosh, that's so- really cute. Stop. <laughs> Adorb. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite practices actually. Um, and don't tell Tara. I, to try to start doing it. And that's something you want <laughs> nothing like, to do with. Don't tell me. Don't tell her. She's like, well, in the other room asking me, like, don't tell me what. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the one of the things you know that that matters in reading the Bible is like, how are you reading it? Are you reading mm. it alone? Are you mm-hmm. reading it with commentary? Are you reading it with loved ones? And for mm-hmm. me, and I think for Cameron, um, being able to talk about it uh, really helps. And being able to just kind of like riff off of each other mm. and say like uh whether that's like oh here's a long list of names and mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to summarize it for you rather than mispronounce all of this or have my <laughs> eyes glaze over yeah or like uh you know recently we were reading Nehemiah and Ooh, I love Nehemiah I love Nehemiah so this is yes. the Bible that I love that I think is actually quite exciting that has like mm-hmm. a lot going on in it and I think I could I could have totally glazed over a lot of the cool stuff if I wasn't reading it out loud with someone I love yeah um so like I was reading out loud and Nehemiah is really talking trash about Tobiah the Nehemiah is talking trash about Tobiah the Amorite mm-hmm. um and Cameron just like while I was reading went ooh <laughs> you're like oh it's a bird book yes absolutely uh yeah too bad yeah, like, like oh man I bet Nehemiah had no idea that for posterity like his shit talk would be preserved absolutely I mean there's a line where Nehemiah <laughs> we're, we're reading out of a translation that I wouldn't normally pick but like it was a bible that was given to us we keep it at the dinner table and uh anyway so uh Nehemiah says like of Tobiah the Amorite like don't listen to Tobiah the Amorite he's <laughs> things up out of his own head and like you know <laughs> so sassy yeah and we so we so that's one of the things that gives life to me in reading the bible mm-hmm. is like reading it out loud giving it character and like I can't always do that alone but like yeah. Cameron was picking up on something mm-hmm. that I wasn't like feeling and, t- and then when he said it I was like oh yes like there is there is this energy here that I was missing yeah. and like honestly it reminds me when I back in the day back in the day when I was like a very pretentious teenager at like a philosophy school Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. we used to have to like read the the socratic dialogues and um and a whole bunch of stuff and so what what my housemates and I ended up doing is we would kind of like read them performatively for and with one another Mm -hmm. and it was so much like it sunk in so much more um Mm -hmm. and starting to do that um you know especially in places where there are lots of characters like I had um housemates in seminary who read Job with me and we read Job in in like one or two settings and it is wow. long 
but yes it is (laughs) yeah there's some monologues in there there are but like there are monologues from these different characters and it helps Mm. so much to separate that and be like oh like what is the personality that Mm -hmm. you're bringing and like this chorus of you know um of controversy you know whatever like it so I think that there are ways to like bring it to life um that feel almost as important as like what translation you're reading or you know what commentary comes with it um mm-hmm. and true for yeah. most things like outdated script that we think is outdated I mean the first I can remember the first time I heard a Shakespearean play read by like not a sixth grader you know and like yeah. struggling through these rhymes and then all of a sudden you get a all the innuendos and you're like oh dang like that was a sick burn and I had no idea totally. and I missed it because I'm just focusing on these words and I can't even see what's happening around me and I can't see the implications and um I think that Absolutely. adds part like in some ways it, like you're saying Nehemiah you can see the humor but in Job yeah. I think you get the drama of it this totally tr- this total tragedy of um, utter devastation that you would miss when you're just saying, and you know, and yet another one of Job's friends is right. piling it on him, and you're like, yeah, you know, we've been reading this for pages. Yeah, yeah, I remember I got I was Job, um, and I remember reading lines like where Job is talking to God and saying like, "Who is to defend me in court against you? Like you're supposed to be my defender," and like it it washed over me in a totally different way when I was trying to embody that and experience Job saying that, not even to any of his friends, but like directly to God and saying like, come talk to me. You know, like you're not even showing up for this fight. Like, where me, are you? <laughs> exactly. But okay. So, so I think that's, that's all really important. And it's something we don't talk about a lot that like the way that you read the manner in which you read, I guess I'll say mm-hmm. one more thing about this. I was, um, I love reading books kind of like all together. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens is that our stories get like chopped up into little bits and then not told as one. And especially towards, you know, in the New Testament with the letters or or even the gospels that are like more continuous story, um, it helps to have like a flow uh, rather than, you know, picking out two chapters or worse, two verses and trying to piece together the Bible from these little fragments. Like we just like found you know, the scrap heap in the paper shredder. And we're like, this is our, this is our scriptures. Um, anyway, so trying to, <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> like at, at like the, de- where the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered and they're just like shredding their paper. <laughs> like the Romans are coming. The Romans are coming. That's what we do though. That's the way that we encounter our scriptures is we're just like, like Oh, here's this. I found it on a pillow. Like <laughs> here's this. I found it under my hymnal. And like, we, that's what we're trying to piece together. If we tried to read any other book that way, we'd be to- so lost. Um, so I, I'm such a fan of like continuous reading or saying like, I'm going to read through this in one sitting or like I'm gonna spend a week or two just like really dedicating myself to like the gospel of Mark or whatever and I I did that once and I was listening to John um and I say listening because I I did kind of a mixture of like I read it and then I was hearing some like audio recordings of someone else Mm -hmm. reading it and tone matters so much because Mm -hmm. I, I was reading it and I have this like fiery Jesus and John who's like philosophical and has like this beauty and like depth to the way that he's talking um but then I listened to this recording and I was like oh my gosh Jesus has never been whinier uh 
I can't, I wish I could remember what the verses were, but it's like, there's a lot of Jesus asking his detractors, like, why, like, basically, like, why are you even why coming are you after me? This? But yeah, it came, it's so that way. It's like, why are you, you don't even believe me. <laughs> why don't you believe me? You wouldn't believe me if you knew my father. <laughs> Teenage bro, like, just me. Oh, like, so don't awful. even listen to me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, so all of those things really matter. Um, but segue, like, there is, there is some problematic material in there that, like, there's no, there's no, like, good, fun way of reading it that, like, changes. Or, or even, like, you know, you were talking about hearing other people's problematic interpretations. Like, oh, yeah. sometimes it seems like the problematic interpretations are the real low-hanging fruit. Like, that's the easy way to interpret it. And you actually have to work a lot harder to find what's truly meaningful there. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned your own experience reading scripture and reading commentary on scripture as a woman. Like, what what has your experience been? You're a white woman from the South, transplanted to the North, in ministry, um, highly mm-hmm. educated, stuck within a system that doesn't always value that. Like, how does all of that shape your experience of reading the Bible when you do come across stuff that is either blatantly or on the surface or at its root problematic. Yeah, I think, so I think thankfully my, how it's like, how I approach it is changing because uh, as you know, um, I, I would say up until recently, it's been three years now, I guess, but I thought I was a straight, you know, right. The times. Um, so for the majority of my life, I thought I was straight. And so but really all that was counted a quote unquote against me, because that really what it is if you're not a, a straight cis het white dude, everything else is a count against you in some way. And yeah. Christian, of course, and upper, upper middle class. So I was young and a woman and like, that was tough in the South, but like, I was like, I can still fight for justice, but you know, coming out and, or coming out even to myself. And I wouldn't even think it was coming out to myself. It was just like realizing, peeling back or becoming more of myself. Um, things become more problematic and that's been a gift to be able to go back and be like, Oh, I missed a lot despite thinking I was reading things well, or reading things as an ally or reading things from a lens of justice or liberation. Um, I wasn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so there's, those are different things that we can, I think that that's allowed me to come at it. Um, It's given me, I think, I wouldn't say I'm more sensitive to things. Um, Not sensitive as a bad thing, like, oh, you're sensitive to the touch, but sensitive as like more aware of um, how little certain people are represented in the scriptures how how whitewashed scriptures are I mean I ask people I'm like have you imagined what this person looks like and like if that person's white you're wrong like let's just start there <laughs> like, let's just erase that image and re- redo it um but I think one of the gifts that I have is I serve just like such a cool church um very small um very radical super okay with my nerdiness um and I'm I will say I'm not a very good um like 
tender. I'm not a very tender person. I'm very intellectual. I'm in my own brain. I think it's, uh, I think Nadia Bolz Weber says this, but like, I think she says like, she's religious, not spiritual. And I've always really like, I'm like, mm, yes, I identify with like, not the mushy gushy stuff of religion, but like the, um, like the formality of things sometimes, um, or the structure. But I think I, I continue to become more aware of problems. Um, well, and it sounds like, is it accurate to say that your self-discovery of your own queerness helped open you to the injustice of your own reading of scripture? Is that what you're... Yeah, I, I think hearing? so. And I think it's becoming even like, I just become more and more profoundly affected by it. And, and but thankfully I can bring that to my church and be like, okay, we're reading X, Y, and Z. And guess what? Women aren't in this. And that's a problem, you know, and the, and it, a lot of it is just like a preface that we'll, I'll give it every sermon. I'll read scripture and either caveat the scripture while we're reading it or either before or after and be like, okay, we're not focusing on this part, but let's note that like there are women present and they're not counted or there are women present and this, and like, or like we read all of scripture and this, there have been no queer voices. Like, and so it's just something that we bring over and over again. And like um, with Joshua, um, you know, I'll talk about like, there's some incredible, incredibly powerful scripture verses for me and Joshua. And like, that is a text about colonization. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, we can read these. And then we, especially as like a predominantly white church need to think about like, this is a, this is a treatise on God justifying colonization. And as people who are like literally worshiping, not right now, cause it's COVID, but worshiping on stolen land, we need to have an honest and frank conversation about this. And so I think that that I, I'm very grateful. There are a lot of churches that I could be having those private realizations, but I could not preach that. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a gift for me because I get to do kind of the dialogue that's happening in my heart. I get to do that publicly. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. And do you bring your own identity into those public conversations or is that more of a private experience? Mm, like, like not being a straight? Yeah, like not being a straight, not being a man, oh, yeah. not being, you know... Um, I would think so. I think, um, especially so at, at old West, which is where I serve, it's our, one of our core values. We have two core values that we have to do everything through. We have four total, but two are everything it's about. Um, and one is the first is inclusive community. And the second is racial equity and social justice. And so, um, the fact that I am white and preaching to a granted a predominantly white church, but it's about 50% white, um, it matters. Like my lens is very, is going to have a skew on it that, um, could heal and it could harm. Um, and as does my queerness, as does the person I am as a, a young person, granted getting older, uh, and then, um, as a woman and, uh, I definitely bring that. And I think it's important for, uh, you know, as pastors, we're both pastoring, um, to bring your authentic self. It's also something that's the church is actively sought to silence, not Absolutely. my church, but like the, like, you know, we want you, but just like, not all of you, we want you to fit, yeah. fit this cookie cutter expectation of 
like someone with not a nose ring. Yeah. Or tattoos. Yes. We both. Yes. Categories that fit both of us. Um, Don't look at my. Yeah. 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 Like we like your energy and the money you bring, but we, we don't like, and like how much you could fundraise, but we don't like literally anything else about you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, it's interesting that you mentioned your age because I think it's a generational thing as well. Um, Mm. I remember having a conversation with, uh, you know, so I was raised in in churches by Gen X or I'm sorry, by boomers. Um, I'm a millennial myself. And um, I remember speaking actually with a Gen Xer friend who I really admire and we were talking about churches and I was kind of ranting. Um, we, We were actually talking about generational difference and I said something about authenticity and, mm-hmm. and I was like, I think it's so insane that millennials get characterized as the people who care about authenticity. Um, because like, who doesn't want that? And my, my Gen Xer friend and colleague was like, me. And I was like, <laughs> like I don't, at least you're honest. Like, yeah. I don't know that you said that directly, but Yikes. he was like, Hey, yeah. like stop projecting your generational experience. Like, mm. uh, you know, boomers want excellence. And like, the, mm-hmm. you know, and this is like obviously broad strokes, but like um, generationally the themes were about excellence and production and like making mm-hmm. church excellent and look good. And you brought your best self. And that's the thing that showed that you yeah. were seriously fascinating. Um, and then like, you know, there, there is this kind of like stripped down meaning uh, I, my poor Gen Xer friend would be so mad at me right now because like <laughs> the rest of the universe, I am failing him in being least familiar with what Gen Xers actually want because I know what boomers want because they raised me and I know what millennials want because we're, you know, taking over. Um, but that, that authenticity, I think is yeah. a shift in the church. And I think it's a shift in our relationship with the Bible because I hadn't heard, I mean, like I too was raised by people who like, I was in a church context, but I learned more about the Bible at home. Mm-hmm. And my questions were acceptable at home. Yes. Um, and even with my parents being who they were, and my dad being the pastor, I still knew they weren't acceptable at church. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. the more I encounter young people in leadership in the church, there seems mm-hmm. to be some breathing room and some space to say like, not all of this makes sense. Not all of this feels good. Like not all of this hangs together even um, and have that be a legitimate conversation rather than a conversation in hushed tones that Mm. you're like, you know, a new copy of the Bible is shoved in your arms and you're told to take care of it by yourself. Yeah. I definitely never experienced the, like your questions aren't welcome, but I also was faced with a lot of late. I mean, my church was like three or 4,000 people, which is a lot compared to like where I serve now, which is like 30, but so I basically serve like a small group in my own church, but like, uh, (laughs) but like, I can remember going up to Sunday school teachers and be like, you're wrong. Like, this is not correct. And like correcting them on scripture. But like, the thing is like, they weren't going to argue with, I mean, at my church, there were five or six pastors. My mom was just one of them. And of course, never the senior pastor, because she's a woman. Right. um they've never had but that was uh, acceptable that they right and it was like gave you space you know that's incredible uh, yeah it was a safe it was a it was a safe space which is cra- I mean it's not safe now uh, the church is definitely becoming more conservative I mean it's practically WCA but um it's fascinating because to me I'm like wow I actually grew up in this kind of like I don't think that was true for a lot of people in that church um but as kind of like one of the chosen children because I was a preacher's kid 
mm-hmm. I got to ask questions um, that other kids didn't. Um, I but I also had that cultivation at home, and I think that was like kind of like the double, this double whammy of I could was curious, but then had parents who not only could answer my questions or say who and were comfortable saying we don't know, but sure. like cultivated that curiosity. Um, and so like never thought that doubt was a problem, never thought that like that asking questions and saying the Bible was inaccurate about things was a problem with my faith. I was like, well, of course it's inaccurate. Let me like look at the Greek. Yeah. And I was like eight. <laughs> People were like, what are you talking about? That's incredible. That's incredible. And I, I wish that that was more common. And I hope that we're building a church that makes that more sure. common. Um, you know, even I think this is just a different, different problem, but like, I think that adults do have a hard time telling children we don't know. And it's something that we encounter in, in our kids ministry at Zao that like, you know, there are people who are really nervous to engage in, in our like kids ministry programming. Cause they're like, what if the kids ask me questions that I don't know? And I'm like, you tell them that you don't know. Right. And they're like, very, you know, they're like, okay, is that cool? Are we cool with that? I'm like, we're great with that. Like, like, you know, and kids are going to ask the best questions. Absolutely. And, and some of them are silly and good. And some of them are like, and and I, I wouldn't even just say kids, like people, I think some of the best questions I get are from some of like our young adults who ask me questions. I'm like, I honestly have never thought of that. I got asked like, cause we've been doing out, you know, something controversial communion online. Oh my gosh. Everyone panic, take a deep breath, get a breather. Like it's going to be fine, but we've been doing it. And, um, I am definitely not a purist. My mother is a purist. Um, so, but I'm not, so I'm like, whatever you use, I don't care. And we say like, I'm like, you can use a muffin tortilla, like go get some, a waffle. Um, and I'm usually doing coffee and saltine. Um, and yeah. like the Lord, <laughs> eh. but hey, we, you know, we've we got talk about it as whatever, something that gives you nourishment and something that brings you Ooh. joy, something that okay. gives you nourishment like bread, something that brings you joy, like wine, like wine. Okay. That makes and, sense. Uh, you know, I'm usually, yeah, I'm, that makes sense. And, and it's so funny. So we'll be doing these things. And I had one of my like young people ask, is there a temperature requirement? for things and I was like oh my what and I was like um and I was like this is a really good question um and this person goes like am I allowed I have to like a popsicle yeah oh can I have a popsicle wow. going cold and like a grilled cheese and I'm like and then as also like is, is there grape flavored yeah <laughs> and then is there is there like this is another one like is there like can, is there too little or too much to be blessed mm. and I was like I was like, you know, the only answer I can tell you, I was like, I don't think Methodists have a thing about this. I was like, but I was like, the only thing I can tell you as like any precedent would be that I know when I have visited Catholic churches, if a crumb drops, the priest will eat it. And so that to me means that no little amount, no amount is too little to be blessed. And this person's yeah. like, all right, like that's our precedent. And I was like, all right, look, I've never been asked these questions. I would never have thought like, is there a temperature regulation? Is there a size? Yeah. But well, like, this can, is the, people ask the questions. joy of spiritual community is like discovering right. these things together rather than being told sure. and handed down from on high. I think this is part of the built-in beauty is that we actually do get to discern together and decide together.
So before we run out of time here, I really would love to talk about a specific yes. Bible story. Yes. Um, and today you and I wanted to talk about Rahab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you speaking like to of, just... Speaking of Joshua. <laughs> right. <laughs> would you like to add conquest and um, right? colonization? Oh, man, uh, so much. You want to catch us up uh, and our listeners who may not be familiar with that story or yeah. um, not have heard it in a while. Just, you know, the major mm-hmm. highlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So in Joshua, and if you're whipping out your Bible or your phone, it's Joshua 2. Um, uh, Joshua in this version of events has been told by the divine like go to Israel and like suss it out. And they're looking at, they're basically invading all of these cities along the way and conquering them. And um, they are going to the city and they send some spies into the city and the city officials know about it. And the spies go and like hide in this lady's house. And this lady lives in a wall. Her name is Rahab. Turns out she is a prostitute and living her life thriving and the city officials come to her door. All right, Real quick. Me. Oh, go can ahead. you clarify what it means to live in a wall? Because there oh, were that does sound like mystics who like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. like bricked oh, themselves into to, walls. Oh, I went Edgar Allan Poe in the living in the wall. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. It got dark quick. Yeah. Anyways. Wow. But it's Rahab, not, she's, it is she's not, got like a good setup. She's yeah. Like, she has like a house and a wall because these walls are like 12 feet uh, deep, which is basically their way of protecting, um, ancient Near Eastern walls is making these massive walls. And then you could actually get really cheap housing kind of in these walls is they wouldn't brick them in fully. They'd have these like kind of houses. So, uh, basically they put poor people in these walls as, uh, it wasn't cannon fodder, but you know, you could die. So Rahab is literally like, insider outsider mm-hmm. tension right and she's, she's like, like yes. in this city but like as far outside right as, as they she can is uh, in the in the, the like jesus extra word be like the liminal space she's like on the margins of this city um and so these like you know city officials are like give us these spies and i'm like these are really gra- bad spies and Terrible spies. <laughs> like hot garbage spies and so they like come in and out their spies and then like will go to this prostitute and hide and she hides them on her roof of the city wall um and sends the city officials on like a wild spy chase somewhere else and then she lets the spies out of her window and basically asks them to protect her when they invade their city um and she gives this actually incredible testimony of faith um that is problematic and we can definitely talk about it. It can be viewed as problematic. Um, he lets the spies down, the spies go back and tell Joshua. And when they invade the city, uh, Rahab and her family are protected, which is dope. And Rahab is actually one of the only women named in Jesus's lineage um, as one of the faithful followers of, you know. Canaanite so and a sex worker and a woman. Yeah. And yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. That's so I, I love this story. And I know that like, I have such a strange relationship to it in my own 
like mm-hmm. church history, because I've never heard a preacher preach on it until I preached on it because of a sermon series you wrote. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was the first preacher I had ever heard talk about it because <laughs> you invited me to do so. Um, but the only other context in which it had come up, it was a featured story in a vacation Bible school oh, curriculum huh. uh, that was so strange. So I was like, there, we're obviously like, at least in my own limited experience, we make some really weird choices about how and when to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm super curious, like what, what do you think is the most kind of like basic, maybe problematic, widespread interpretation of Rahab? Oh God. Um, I, it's almost like, this is like a progressive misinterpretation and or a progressive struggle I think is um it can be interpreted and it I'm not saying it's wrong uh that Rahab's words her profession of faith are not hers but the Deuteronomist the writer of Mm. Joshua and they're putting words in this woman's mouth yeah and I I struggle with this because firstly I'm like f you guys am I allowed to cuss I mean, I don't know. Is that a, whatever. I mean, edit it out. Fuck you guys. Like, you know, like I've learned from experience that the lightning is at at best slow in coming. (laughs) Smite me, almighty smiter. Um, Speak your truth. But like, it does. And and I struggle. I'm like, is this a valid critique? Sure. Is it going to change that? I think this is a fantastic profession of faith from an outsider, as you said, a sex worker, a woman, um, and, and by outside, I mean, like, literally outside her own city, basically, outside of the Israelites, and throughout most of the Old Testament um, is even, and I would say even the New Testament, is seen as not valid, not a valid believer, but because she's a Canaanite. I mean, she is the, she is the lowest of the low. Um, and so I'm just like, this is incredible. We have a testimony of faith from a woman. Like, I'm going to take my, I'm going to take a win. Yeah. where I can and not to not to minimize that and not to say it might be complicated but I do want to take a win where there is one um and so I think I struggle with that um and this is a story written by a man but a man chose to put those words in an outsider in a sex worker in a woman's voice in a world where like the testimony of a woman was zero worth. Like yeah. Jesus's own resurrection was questioned yeah. by, because there were no men seeing it. And so I'm just like, this mat, this mat, this story matters. Her testimony matters. And absolutely. And that to me is something I struggle with is even like, I feel like it's like uh, progressive trying to out progressive each other sometimes. Sure. Like, well, it probably was a man putting that in her words. And I'm like, but it matters that, she has she got to a be speaking role. She has a speaking yeah. role, which is, yeah. you know, sometimes I feel like I'm grasping at straws for what. <laughs> you know, I think that's real. And I think that's part of the reason where, you know, these are important conversations to have. It's like, what are the valid um, truths that we can hold on to, even if we have to wrestle them away from people who have been 
interpreting scripture really differently. Because I think what comes up for me, and maybe this is less of a progressive interpretation. I mean, it is. But the thing that that I hear in the world, and even the thing that I have been trained, like I read this and I was like, oh, I know what people are going to say about this. Um, is oh, that, I like, know. I, I can hear it right now. Um, <laughs> you know, all these sermons about like, ooh, bad prostitute. Ooh, Canaanite ooh, woman. Ooh, unmarried business mm-hmm. owner. Um, and they're not going to call her a business owner. Um, <laughs> I did. I called her a business owner. Um, she, yeah, she was making money. Yeah, but like, but she's the woman of the world and a woman ooh, of the night. And, you know, all of these terrible things right and that's the implication right bad woman um who is redeemed by and i think this is an interpretation i reject redeemed by um betraying the evil ways of herself and her Mm, canaanites mm -hmm. to choose the faithful power and beauty and cleanliness of god and israel Mm, mm which is such like, bullshit like we totally. like she we don't know if she quit her job she was putting her kids through canaanite college like she had well, to make money yeah and also like let's be real why were the spies at her house like, don't lie come on now they you didn't know. stumble upon her house and be like oh <laughs> can you please shelter us by the way what do you do for a living like pardon moi they were at the sex workers brothel. yeah they were they, they, they were <laughs> lonely and they <laughs> went this is why they were bad spies okay and this is actually why they should have actually it was a probably should have hired women to be the spies yes because they would have been a lot more effective and we wouldn't have even had this story to begin with flown under the radar a little bit more (laughs) well so in any case i i just think it's insane that like we we really glossed over the fact that these spies were probably um partaking of rahab's services oh yes and then we're like, oh, they're the good and holy ones. She's the bad one for right. being a sex worker in the first place. Right. Um, but she redeems herself by protecting them and whatever. And I just hear a totally different story play out um, when I yes. read Rahab. Like, I hear this woman who is, you know, in in this city that like doesn't mm-hmm. that needs her that uses her services but doesn't value her like quite literally does not literally value her. doesn't yeah she's pushed to the outskirts again in mm-hmm. this like literal and metaphorical way but she is making her own and she's building her own home and community that she mm-hmm. obviously runs i mean like when she talks in the scriptures about her family that she wants protection for she's like i don't remember the exact phrasing but it's she's basically like my people So it's like, not necessarily like my blood relatives. It's like my people, I have formed a chosen family Mm -hmm. and, you know, depending on how much leeway you want to give here, like who knows if she's a sex worker, maybe she's running um, a tavern or a brothel or like there are other, um, other women that she's working with that she Mm -hmm. can to be under her care. Um, And so she's surviving in the world, the way that she has found is possible and so here yeah. we come thousands of years later with all of our judgment about it and are like, right. oh yeah, you better redeem yourself. Um, and and like then it becomes problematic because it's like she redeems herself by betraying her people to colonizers. But like, what if they aren't her pe- Like her people are in her home. Her people are the ones she is. She's got her crew. Yeah. 
And so she sees, you know, the, the tides are turning, the wind is changing direction. She's like, mm-hmm. I, I see the new empire coming in. I have no loyalty to the empire I'm under. So right. sure, I, I can get behind your empire, but like, Doing I'm the best she out. can with what she's got. And yeah. like, and what's crazy to me in the end of it is like, she's a kingmaker. Like yeah. She, uh, like choices Rahab made, choices that so, I mean, in the, especially when you look at the lineage of Jesus, choices these women made to sacrifice themselves, their bodies. Uh, um, I mean, you're talking about realm breakers. You're talking yeah. about people who, I mean, and I, I think I talked about this with a story about Hannah. We're talking about, you know, the call of different prophets. And I'm like, without Hannah, we wouldn't have had this prophet. We wouldn't have had, and Hannah set the stage for Mary. I mean, we were talking about, we are talking about people who shaped the courses for kings, for countries, for generations, for worlds. And to, to like muddy that down and to diminish it and to be like, well, you know, she was a prostitute or she betrayed these people. And I'm like, that critique is never given to male leads in the Bible. Yeah. Like Rahab gets more crap than Judas. (laughs) Like dang son. So does Mary Magdalene. than, Than like David. Right? Oh my gosh. Ew. What a creep. Like yeah. yikes bikes. Uh, oh man. We had a seminary professor who was like, what do y'all like, what do about David? And all these people are like, oh, David's a man after God's own heart. And I was like, David was a creepster. Like yeah. David is out here looking at ladies with but his like, like yikes bikes. I think that this gets to the thing that like the, the, the figures of our faith are really complicated. Mm. Oh yeah. And like, why is it that the the men in our faith history have a right to be complicated mm. um and and the women don't that like the women get reduced Ooh, right wow, so yes. like rahab gets reduced to the part of her that feels complicated or boundary breaking um rather mm. than mm. complicated and in like a way that shows how she is a survivor she is a kingmaker she is drastically like shaping the events around her mm-hmm. even in a world that wants her to just be subject to it wow, um, yeah can we hold all of that can she be a whole yeah. person I don't think and, and I think the answer is no unless you're a man and I think that that's a really it's a fascinating look at like purity culture of there is this purity culture I feel like in the church for the the one true the one true female yeah. is Mary and then everything else, and and there is no other, and and Mary's example equal to Jesus, and I'm just like, wait, this is not possible. And then everything else is skewed from that. I oh, I'm really thinking about this is interesting because there is this reduction of the feminine. We see this with Rahab until like the good she does, but not and not allowing for her complexity, like okay, she's a prostitute. Great. Like whatever. And then, and continue on like girls earning money in a culture that mostly wouldn't allow a business owner to be a woman. Like she's caring for her entire family. Like she's the breadwinner for this entire family. Like that's incredible. Yeah. Um, 
And wow. I hear though, in my own kind of more cynical take on it, mm. that's like Rahab's doing what she's got to do. Mm-hmm. What I end up doing really is minimizing that profession of faith because I am seeing her mm. taking opportunities to, um, to survive in a world that's meant to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if there is something then that I miss to be able to say like, what if she can do all of those things and have like a genuine profession of faith, a genuine connection to the divine that is also motivating her. And so I, I hear in your celebration of her profession that like, I, I may also be minimizing her and not able to hold the complexity of all of that. Um, so that's something I really want to sit with. Yeah, I think it's incredible to think about, I mean, putting things aside, being like, okay, the Bible is a bunch of stories, wonderful stories, stories I love to hear, stories I believe in, stories I preach, but a bunch of stories. And thinking of these people as like living, breathing individuals who the entire life of Rahab is literally reduced to basically two chapters of the Bible. This one chapter in Joshua and like a singular reference, I think in Matthew, um, like not a lot. And so the entire life of this person is reduced to what? 20 words. Um, and we make so many adjudications about who that person is and we make judgment calls about them. And I think we do, we're doing our best. I mean, that's part of our job is to do exegesis on this person and eisegesis, like, but we don't want it to be, it's interesting to be like, this is a complex living, breathing human being who was killing it in the world. And and we get one tiny blip of insight into their, into their life. And it turns out that their life changed the world. Yeah. I think what does, what I love about Rahab is like, Rahab gives me hope that like, even a life that the world has diminished and would continue to diminish and like still diminishes, like this is true today. Like yeah. sex workers are still diminished, has the capacity proof in point with Rahab to literally change the face of the earth. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, that's listen, a good news. <laughs> yeah, that's great news. That is great news. It is. And, and not necessarily by renouncing her own personhood, which I think is one of the toxic interpretations of the scripture, mm-hmm. but by following who she is, where she's called, the God she loves, um, into the fullness of herself. Like I just, I, that's beautiful. Um, well, we've got to wrap up here, but, um, yeah. Sarah, I was wondering if you could answer a few of our final questions here. Yes. So I know, um, yeah. So the two questions here, what Bible character or figure are you like over it with? Mm. Like mm-hmm. heard too much from take a back seat, please. <laughs> Thank you. Oh gosh, who have I preached? I did preach a lot. Um, I'm generally over Joshua, even though we just talked about Joshua. If yeah. I could just like cut, yeah. Um, it it as a book or as a figure? I think as a both? as yes, and like if I could cut out the yes, the parts of Joshua I like, you know, this, I mean, this is like what you're not supposed to do with the Bible, like cut out what you like and like read right. the rest, but if I could cut out the colonizing crap of Joshua, yeah. I think it would be this incredible testament of faith, but it just is so bad. Yeah. Um, and I think of the 
this land is your land, this land is my land, but not really, you know, because it's my land, not your yeah. land. Uh, I think it's a, at least for right now, it's not the message that like white Christian America needs. Yeah. So I think yeah. I'm done with Joshua for now. Except right, for Rahab, back we'll save her. Yeah, she gets a little, <laughs> she's a, a little she gets to come along still. All right. Any any Bible figures that you wish would get more airtime that people would talk about more? Uh, well, my favorite Bible character is um, the woman at the well in mm. John four, um, and like talking about the you know Methodists all about making disciples for Jesus Christ, and I'm like, look at homie changing hearts and minds, absolutely, her entire town, like. And so obviously there's like a theme in my life about like women <laughs> in the Bible yeah. that I love, but um, yeah, she's been my favorite, one of my favorite top two characters in the Bible and my top two do not include Jesus, but it's always been Mary Magdalene and the woman of the well. And if, uh, if they could get any airtime at all, more than they're getting, it's my favorite thing. So those would be my top two votes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate this conversation so much. And um, yeah, just look forward to, like I said, sitting with some of what you have challenged me about in my own understanding of rehab um, and continuing to do the work of the Liberation Project. Um, Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.